0: Let's begin with a word of prayer, and uh, it is not without a little bit of irony that tonight, think about it, there's two letters tonight, two letters next week, and we did it. We're across the finish line on a very difficult book. We've done it together, and so tonight is perseverance. Perseverance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you who persevered in Sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be obedient unto death, and not only death, but the death of the cross, who persevered for us in our salvation. We ask you, O Lord, to grant to us perseverance, and grant to us, Lord, that we would benefit from thinking about spiritual formation. Ultimately, we would love you more because of this study. And pray for all the other studies going on, and for the children and the student ministry. We ask, O Lord, your blessing. And we thank you for your promised presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get to it. Screw tape begins letter 28. Tonight, 28, 29. Next week, 30, 31. He begins with a theme we've heard over and over, and he's frustrated Wormwood doesn't understand. Wormwood is again thrilled because the war is finally reaching the patient's hometown. And it looks like... Uh, They have figured out that it's going to be certain that the Germans are going to be bombing that hometown in England, wherever he is, in the coming days. And so the demons should be thrilled, right? I mean, war and destruction and bombs, after all. Doesn't the enemy give his purpose statement? He gives his mission statement. Did you know Satan has a corporate mission statement? Yeah. It's found in John 10.10 where Jesus says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. It's as if he gave us his purpose statement. So if you think, okay, well, if if he's come to steal and kill and destroy, then obviously a, a, a war would be, a bombing raid would be just the right thing, right? Not so fast. Remember Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So see, when he comes to steal and kill and destroy, when it comes to killing a saint, well, that's just, a, that's just a heavenly promotion. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Can you imagine? How would you stop somebody like the Apostle Paul? Imagine you're a Roman uh, emperor or you're an a, a, a old uh, a Jewish leader who's still tied to that system and rejects Jesus as Messiah. How would you stop Paul? He said, well, go tell him if he doesn't quit preaching, we're going to beat him up. I go tell him hey, if you don't quit beating, if you don't quit preaching, we're gonna beat you up. Come back. What he said? He said that if he suffers, it'll just draw him closer to Christ. Okay. Well, go tell him if you doesn't quit preaching, we'll throw him in prison. I go tell him throw him in prison. He comes back. What he said? He said, great, I'll witness to the uh, prison guard, and the gospel <laughs> will just go forth. <laughs> you know, now he's literally got a captive audience. Okay. And so they said, we well, tell him if he doesn't, he'll, he'll, we'll kill him. Go and tell him we'll kill him. What did Paul say? He said, if you kill me, it's a promotion. He right? you know, you can't stop a guy like that, right? So if the patient is right with God, then his death, screw tape says, if a, if, a, if a man or a woman's right with God, then from the demon's perspective, the death is like the last thing you should want, right? So here's how he says it. Let's get to it. My dear Wormwood, when I told you not to fill your letters with rubbish about the war, I meant, of course, that I did not want to have your rather infantile rhapsodies about the death of men and the destruction of cities. Insofar as the war really concerns the spiritual state of the patient, I naturally want full reports. And on this aspect, you seem singularly obtuse. That word means slow to understand. In other words, you're not getting the point. I don't care about the death and destruction. I care about how can we separate this man from God. Thus you tell me with glee that there is, oh, there's reason to expect heavy air raids on the town where the creature lives. This is a crying example of something I've complained about already. Your readiness to forget the main point in your enjoyment of human suffering. In other words, you're all excited. These bombs are going to fall and, oh, we'll get to see all this human suffering and they hate humans. Fine. But you forget the main point. I love this line. Do you not know that bombs kill men? Or do you not realize that the patient's death at this moment is precisely what we want to avoid? Screwtape's saying something that every Christian ought to remember. For a believer in Christ, for a rescued sinner, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the main point of the whole letter. He's saying, look, ironically, the last thing we want is for this guy to get killed by a bomb and then go to heaven. Now we've lost the chance to mess with him. Screwtape is saying, look, maybe if he lives a good long life, and here we go back to something we covered, if, you've been, if you can think back to January and February. Can you believe we started this in January? You remember back there, you know, Screwtape is not even uh, not even considered to be true from his own perspective. I think there's some wishful thinking. And he thinks maybe he can sort of get him back once he's been in the enemy's camp. I would put it this way. Maybe Screwtape thinks if he lives a good long life, he can be like, do you remember that seed in the parable of the sower? The sower goes out to spread seeds. Some of it falls on the path. Some of it falls in the really good soil. But some of it falls in the same soil as um, thorns and thistles and weeds. And what happens? Everything grows up, and the weeds choke it out. And they choke out the life of that uh, uh, a good crop. And so he's saying, he's hoping that maybe he's, he's one of those. He starts out strong, but the cares of this life choke him out. So he, if he dies now, it just proves, nope, he was, he was good soil good seed, or as Scrutate puts it this way, look, he's already, he has escaped, you see where I am? He has escaped the worldly friends with whom you tried to entangle him. Now, if you think about it, we're in chapter 28, so We're almost at the end. He's kind of looking back over all that he's covered. Do you remember the worldliness? Remember the cool kids table? Remember that? He's saying, you've overcome that. He's overcome that. Then you tried to attack him on his, uh, remember the the biblical sexual ethic, either purity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. So you tried to get him on that. Well, now he's fallen in love with a very Christian woman and is temporarily immune from your attacks on his chastity. In other words, he can't be out playing the field with a bunch of other women. He has one girlfriend and she loves the Lord. And so they're committed obviously here to, to the biblical guidelines for purity before marriage. So strike two, you didn't, that didn't work and the various methods of corrupting his spiritual life, which we have been trying are so far unsuccessful, and it gets worse for Wormwood. In fact, what has the war done? The war has actually made him a more mature Christian, not a less one. Here's what he says. At the present moment, as the full impact of the war draws nearer, and his worldly hopes take a proportionally lower place in his mind, full of his defense work, so he's obviously some role in the military defending uh, England, So his mind's full of his work, full of the girl, forced to attend to his neighbors more than he's ever done before and liking it more than he expected, quote, taken out of himself, as the humans say, and daily increasing in conscious dependence on the enemy. He will almost certainly be lost to us if he's killed tonight. This is so obvious, I'm ashamed to write it. Now, this is a good reminder to all of us. It's so obvious to the demons that they see the truth in a way so often we don't because we've been lied to over and over. But I'll say it again. The worst thing that can happen from the perspective of the enemy, from the perspective of Screwtape and the demons, the worst thing that can happen is that a faithful Christian dies. As simple as I notice it. Mean, again, go back to Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. <coughs> so, for the enemy, for a faithful Christian to die, it is the worst thing that can happen. So, what does he want then for this bombing raid tonight? He actually wants the same thing that his mama and his girlfriend are praying for. He wants the guy to remain unharmed. And that that feels weird that the demons would actually want the same thing. Your mama is praying for you, right? And yet, it is what it is. I sometimes wonder if you young fiends, he writes, are not kept out on temptation duty too long at a time. If you're not in some danger of becoming infected by the sentiments and values of the humans among whom you work. They, of course, do tend to regard death as the prime evil and survival as the greatest good. But that's because we've taught them to do so. Do not let us be infected by our own propaganda. I know it seems strange that your chief aim at the moment should be the very same thing for which the patient's lover and his mother are praying, namely his bodily safety. But so it is. You should be guarding him like the apple of your eye. If he dies now, you lose him. If he survives the war, there's always hope. Is everybody clear on the main point of this letter? Everybody got it? It's a theme that's run really the entire length of the book. Okay, does Satan, the, the does screw tape want this uh, 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 throughout the whole book? Does Satan want you rich or keep you poor? And the answer is, he doesn't care. Whatever will separate you from God. Do you remember uh, Proverbs thirty where the guy prays, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, just give me enough for my daily bread. Because if you give me poverty, I may be tempted to steal. But if you give me too much riches, I may be tempted to look up at heaven and go, who needs the Lord? So just give me my daily bread. Don't give me poverty, don't give me riches. I think it's interesting here that Satan Satan doesn't care if you're rich or poor. Does Satan want you healthy or sick? Well, it depends. He doesn't care. If sickness is going to make you bitter against God and evil towards your neighborhood, fine, sickness. But if perfectly good health makes you forget about God, and how many of us know health, we all take health for granted until what? Until we throw our back out at Lowe's. <laughs> And suddenly we're like, if I can ever walk again, I will praise you, God, with every step. Right? We all do it. We take our health for granted, and when we take our health for granted, we sometimes forget to be grateful for what we have. And so Satan's like, well, if I can get, if, if if you can be healthy, happy, and rich all the time and forget God, then guess what? Satan is actually working to make you healthy, happy, and rich. Unbelievable. Does he want you? Hardest question. Does he want you dead or alive? If you're unsaved, he wants death to take you as quickly as possible. If you're a mature Christian, he's just holding out hope that maybe it's a passing phase and long life would prove it was never real. So he wants you to live as long as possible. Isn't that something? Now, the enemy has guarded him from you, he writes. He goes on. Next paragraph. I think it's the next paragraph. Let me check here. Which version? Nope, we're still in the first monster, wildly long paragraph, aren't we? Okay, we're going to have time for questions. I promise we'll pick it up. The enemy has guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, anybody who's in middle age, I hope I get at least a, you don't have to full-blown say amen to this, but you can at least have a little knowing grin. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. Campaigning weather is a good time to go out to war. You see, it's so hard for these creatures to persevere. (laughs) Anybody going through the long, dull, monotonous years of middle age right now? I heard Jeff York speak in uh, Charlotte this weekend and he said, I know something about you. The vast majority of your life is boring. And he said, it's okay. You can admit it. My life's boring too. He said, i wake up in the morning on Monday. And he's a college president. He goes, I'm a seminary president. So it's even more boring. He said, i wake up in the morning. This is what I do in the morning. I eat breakfast. It's two scrambled eggs. That's all old people like me are allowed to eat. And then I go to work. You ready for this? I do email. Then I go to meetings. Then I get to have lunch. And it's a salad. And then in the afternoons, I do email, I go to meetings, I come home, I eat dinner. It's got to be something green, something lean. We go to bed, and we get up the next morning, and here's the thing, I get to have two scrambled eggs. And then when I get to work, I mix it up. Sometimes, I'll do meetings, then email. (laughs) Right? Right? And then I get to have lunch, and that day I might do a soup. You know, he goes on and on, and everybody gets the point. His, his point was what? Uh, did you know, as a Christian, when you begin to speak to somebody about God, when you begin to share your faith, that's the point where your boring life touches eternity. And the Lord has led him, and, and you can read his story, uh, but the Lord has led him particularly to ministry to baseball and eventually baseball umpires. And there's a crazy baseball player named Barry Zito. He was kind of my generation. You remember Barry Zito had that wicked curveball? He would, like, meditate, new age. He would do, like, yoga before the games. And Jeff York, this, this guy, was the chaplain for his baseball team when he was with the A's or the Giants, I remember. And uh, he said, I want to meet with you. And he's like, okay, great. Anyway, leads Barry Zito to Christ and Barry Zito is now a strong Christian and he wrote Barry Zito's book is called Curveball. It's about how he came to faith in Jesus Christ and how he shares the gospel with other people. It's an incredible story. And he says that one day, in the email, in the meeting, but that day I get to touch eternity. Don't ever forget, we're dealing with eternal beings. I said on Sunday, people are not projects, they're treasures. But I can clarify, they're treasures that's going to last forever. Forever, Everybody you meet is going to last forever. So when you intersect their life with the gospel, you're touching eternity. Incredible. Back to middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity. Here's what I think is interesting. He says when it comes to perseverance, you guessed it. You guessed it. As always, what's going to choke out the life of a believer? He doesn't care. Should we tempt this guy in middle age with a bunch of adversity? or a bunch of prosperity. You guys already should know the answer. Doesn't matter, right? He'll do either one. Let's start with adversity. The routine of adversity, Screwtape writes, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt his pain of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which with, which with the whatever the drabness which we create in their lives and the inarticulate, that's funny, in our, of all things to stumble over, inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this proves admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. Now, this is a great sentence. Uh, 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 what does it mean, wear out a soul by attrition? Remember, there's there's two ways to win a war. One is just You know, blitz and just overwhelming force. The others slowly, years of little victory after little victory until they eventually give up. They call that a war of attrition, death by a thousand cuts, that kind of thing. And notice this how's he gonna do it the gradual decay of youthful loves and hopes uh, uh, I noticed the newlyweds didn't come back this week That's fair uh, <laughs> sad but what if the feelings of falling out of love fade or or what what if and that's true when you get to middle age you start looking around going well I had all these hopes and there was always time and I was gonna do all these great things but I had plenty of time to do it and now I'm looking at Jackie like hey if we're gonna do something like we should do it like this is it this is our life you know, you blink and suddenly you're like, I wonder what I should do with my life. Oh, I just did, I love. I, I lived it, right? Uh, there's, um, where did I hear this recently? Where, did I read it? Where um, the little girl uh, looked at uh, her papa, her, her, her grandfather, and said, it must be nice, grandpa. And he said, why? You don't have to worry about the future. You've already had yours. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes, right? So that dull sort of sense of the the fading of youthful hopes, the fading of youthful loves. And and this is the point, inarticulate. It takes a little kid to put it into words, but it's that quiet despair, here's what I love, of the chronic temptations which we've made them think will never overcome unless I yield. Think about it. There comes a point where a soul says, you know what, when it comes to this particular temptation, I'll never break it. When it comes to this habit, I'll never get over it. When it comes to this hang-up, why try? Screw things, right? Satan wants to get you to a point as a believer. He wants to get you to a point where, and you you can't necessarily put a finger on it, but he wants to get you a point where, where he he has you convinced that the only way temptation will ever stop is just to give in. But he's wrong. It's a lie. Guys, we got to persevere. we got to help each other persevere. Because otherwise we're going to fall into this trap that, why bother? And once you throw in the towel, it's over, right? I mean, so, so, but what happens? Drabness, dullness, and I love this, inarticulate resentment. Middle-aged men especially, I think, develop this low-grade anger. Do you know what a low-grade fever is? It's not enough to send you rushing to the ER, but you don't feel right. It's just a constant sort of burning. I, I know a lot of people with sort of low-grade anger, and they can't figure out why. They can't put a finger on it. But I think deep down, it's resentment that life didn't turn out like like they planned. Adversity. That's one way to get them. All that terrible stuff I just described is terrible. And as bad as that sounds, Screwtape says, actually, I prefer prosperity. It's even worse for their soul. (laughs) If, on the other hand, here we go, prosperity. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. I love that because this sounded awful, especially the way I just described it. But he says this, this is even more firmer ground for the demons. See, here's why. Prosperity knits a man to the world. Yeah, he feels he is finding his place in it. I'm I'm finally making it. I got a little money in the bank. I got a couple cars. Got me a 401k and a mortgage. And you know what? I think I'm finding my place in this world. Well, really, the world is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation. I'm just, people start to know me a little bit. His widening circle of acquaintances. Hey, I know Barry Zito. His sense of importance. <laughs> I, I don't know Barry Zito. His sense of importance. The growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work. built up in him a sense of being, you know, really at home in earth. Which is just what we want get the cares of this world to make him think you know maybe this earthly world is my home and maybe maybe that's why a lot of people don't long for heaven is because they look around they go well I've got I've got heaven right here and he ends with a zinger he says those who haven't had time to become too attached to this world are the young screw says you'll notice the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old the truth is that the enemy Having oddly destined these mere mortals to life in his own eternal world has guarded them pretty effectively from the danger of feeling at home anywhere else. When C.S. Lewis pause, When C.S. Lewis writes about heaven, and uh, a lot of what he writes about heaven can be found in the book Mere Christianity, and I highly recommend. Uh, but when he writes about heaven, and here he's touching on heaven, how this world is not our home, I believe Lewis is at his absolute best. Randy Alcorn wrote, to me, the best, most helpful resource on heaven. He wrote the book on heaven. The book is called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. If you can get a copy of that, Randy Alcorn basically spends a lot of the book quoting C.S. Lewis passages on heaven. So I think both these guys. At any rate, here's one of Lewis's most famous quotes. This comes from Mere Christianity. Perhaps you've heard it. Talking about how this world is not our home. Here's a quote. Quote, if I find in myself desires... Which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. See, our hearts were made to yearn and long for home. But Screwtape thinks give them enough time and maybe we can start to anesthetize that yearning and make people think that this world is all there is. And maybe we should just get all we can in this world and and live a long and prosperous life on this world. Uh, So Screwtape writes, That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. Consider that, contrast that with what the Apostle Paul says, the world's been crucified to me and I've been crucified to the world. When I was uh, uh, in college, again, I've said this before, I'll say it again, the absolute golden age of contemporary Christian music was the 90s. And I'll debate anybody who says otherwise. But uh, uh, the band Cademan's Call this world has nothing for me and this world has everything. It's a great line. This world has nothing for me and this world has everything. It captures a lot of that imagery in that line. I think in music lyrics I can maybe maybe you're like me. Maybe I'm all alone. <laughs> takes time but get them to think that this world is all there is. Now, he says, "Good luck getting an 18-year-old to think that." Now, when they're, when they're young and they're 18, they're always wondering, oh, there's more to life. While they are young, he writes, we find them always shooting off at a tangent. Even if we contrive to keep them ignorant of explicit religion, the incalculable winds of fantasy and music and poetry, the mere face of a girl, the song of a bird, the sight of a horizon, are always blowing our whole structure away. They will not apply themselves steadily to worldly advancement, prudent connections, and the policy of safety first. What on earth is he talking about? He's saying it's really hard to tempt 18 year olds with this kind of attachment to the world because they're always looking around going, there's gotta be more to this, man. There's got to be more to this. And that, that, that thinking works against the demons. That's actually pretty godly thinking. There is more than this. So what does Screwtape do with them? So inveterate, that, that that word means so ingrained, is their appetite for heaven, that our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth is to make them believe that, well, there is more to this. But like earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by, you know, politics or eugenics or quote-unquote science or psychology or, or whatnot. So he's saying, just just tell them, yeah, well, one day. We just need a little more AI. We need a little more cloning and gene therapy, and eventually we'll get, we'll get heaven right here on Earth. We don't need God or the gospel or anything. You know, that, That's what they try to tell young people now, he says. Real worldliness is a work of time, assisted, of course, by pride, for we teach them to describe the creeping death as good sense or maturity or experience. And uh, i got to use good sense here uh, to know how deep to go. We're trying to honor the time here. And, and again, allow time for questions, so... Okay, getting... He, remember, he wants to get a soul attached to this world. And he says it takes pride. Why? Because if, you, if you've got somebody who says, Nope, this world is all there is, then they have to be prideful enough to say, No God, no religion, no, no, no Bible. I don't believe you. I've got better sense that this world is all there is because I live by what I can experience. I live by my own sort of observation and what I can see leads me to believe by pure reason that there is no God and I know better than you, I'm smarter than you, that's that's pride. Experience, in the peculiar sense we teach them to give, it is, by the way, a most useful word. A great human philosopher nearly let our secret out when he said that where virtue's concerned, quote, experience is the mother of illusion. But thanks to a change in fashion and also of course to the historical point of view we've largely rendered this book innocuous that means harmless what's he talking about there's a philosopher named Immanuel kant who wrote his famous work called the critique of pure reason and what kant was trying to say was to everybody who thinks oh no we can figure out moral laws just by reason he's saying no you need something else you need revelation that's really the long and short of his book and so that he would say when it comes to nature you can look around and go okay uh, I see that the bigger animal devours the smaller animal. I, I see that, that nature is fighting and territorial. He's saying, if, if that's all you can see, you can't apply that same experience to virtue. It'll, it'll get you nowhere. We need revelation to realize, hey, we're not animals. We shouldn't just have the strong devour the weak. And this is Kant's point. And Screwtape is saying, well, nobody reads Immanuel Kant anymore, so we're, we're safe. We're fine. By the way, the historical point of view. I'll just say this again um, to anybody who's you know in in college or um, is uh, pursuing higher education or teaching in higher education. Uh, remember the the trend right now. Nobody's asking is what Kant said true. They're asking who influenced him. What was his influences What was his What was his uh, bias Was he patriarchal in his point of view or or eh, Before we get into all that, just is it true, right? Um, and so that's largely, he says, screw tapes, do we? All right, anyway. How valuable time is to us may be gauged by the fact that the enemy allows so, us so little of it. Now, this, this is very sobering. The majority of the human race dies in infancy. I, I guess that the, of the survivors, a good many die in youth. It is obvious to him that human birth is important, chiefly as the qualification for human death, and death solely as the gate to that other kind of life. We're allowed only, really, we're allowed to work only on a selected minority of the race for what humans call a normal life is the exception. Boy, that that really is sobering. But and if you think about the history of the world, I know there's been advances in modern medicine, but if you think about the, the history of the world, I mean, the life expectancy in this country to be around hovering around, what, when I was born, it was like 72 years old. That is like that is a relatively minority of the whole world. And nowhere was this put more plainly than on Sunday. Did anybody hear in the 1030 service? Did, you were here on Sunday, that the kids led us in worship. You heard them lead that prayer. Wasn't that prayer beautiful when they started the service? Did anybody hear the 1030 prayer? I, I couldn't believe such a fine point was put on it. She, she got the little girl, I don't remember what it was, got up there and prayed, Lord, thank you for waking us up this morning, letting us live, because not everybody got to i was like oh she's right she's absolutely right leave it to a little kid to be like hey if you're alive you better thank god because not everybody was i was like she's totally right so life for living people mic drop i thought that's unbelievable what a great prayer i don't know that i would have the courage to pray that every sunday but you know she was absolutely right she wasn't she if you're alive, if you're taking a breath, it is reason for gratitude. It is absolutely a reason to praise the Lord. So Tape is saying, well, as long as you're alive, I'm also after you. I'm going to keep tempting you and test you in your perseverance. Apparently he wants some, Screwtape writes, but only a very few of the human animals with which he is peopling heaven to have had the experience of resisting us through an earthly life of 60 or 70 years. Well, there's our opportunity. The smaller it is, the better we must use it. Now, some of you have been resisting screw tape. Some of you have been walking with Jesus now for decades and you've been fighting screw tape off. And to you, you know what you're doing? You're persevering. So teach those who come behind you some of your tricks, some of your ways. Teach us about how to pray. Teach us about how to live a godly life. Teach us how to love your family faithfully. We need that, right? And then we will teach the next generation and so forth. Because Screwtape's been after us, but you've been persevering. Well, in this case, you've got a patient who's doing everything in accordance to God's will. He's living humbly, simply. He's doing his duty in the war. So the last sentence, so whatever you do, keep your patient as safe as you possibly can, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And if you understand that last sentence, you understand the irony, and the whole point of this letter. And that's, it's ironic, but if he loses them now, all hope is lost. Somebody, uh, during COVID, they were asking pastors and uh, uh, they were interviewing this panel of pastors and I happened to be a part of this thing and um, they were firing these questions. And the, uh, somebody asked, I don't think they thought about how they worded it, but somebody asked like, do you worry about the future of the church? Do you worry about the church? And the guy's answer blew me away. He was like, I never worry about the church because the vast majority of the church is already safely home. Think about the last 2,000 years. Think about the saints that you know and love that have gone to be with Jesus. They're safely home. So as a pastor, as a shepherd, they're good. Right? We just got to, as a priesthood of all believers, we just got to shepherd each other safely to glory. I got my eye on some of you. Hey, whoa, come on. All right? But that's ultimately the job. We just got to get these sheep safely to glory. That's it. Isn't it? But the vast majority, they can't be harmed. I, had, uh, I hadn't played the game sorry since I was a kid. And I re- I remember why. It caused so many fights in our as kids that I think that's probably why. But if any of you remember the game sorry... The point is, you go across around, you have to go all the way around the board, and then you make it up into your little safe, they call it the safety zone, and then you get to home base. And once you're home base, your pieces are safe. Until then, they can be taken out. And I always thought, so I was playing it in spring break where the Airbnb where I had this board game, and I thought, hey, let's play this with our family and see if our family dynamics are strong enough to survive this. <laughs> and uh, and we're all still here. We love each other. Uh, Jackie's not here. I get okay, sorry. And... Uh, and I thought about that like like rounding home and once you can get them safe once they're safely home But that's it the vast majority of the church is safely home Well letter 29 he returns to an old familiar topic <clears throat> So we will turn our attention to letter 29. It'll be the same kind of thing. It'll be one of two choices and Letter 29 he's coming back to a topic. He's talked a lot about the topic is fear the letter begins with the news that the German bombers are going to hit his town tonight. My dear Wormwood, now that it is certain the German humans will bombard your patient's town and that his duties will keep him in the thick of the danger, we must consider our policy. So the bombs are going to fall on him tonight. Are we to aim at cowardice with all that comes of being a coward? Or courage? And what comes with courage, potentially? What would be the temptation of courage? Because that's a virtue. How could that be a temptation? Uh, With consequent pride or hatred of the Germans. So in other words, if we we get him to feel really courageous, just like with humility, we might get him to be proud of his courage. Just like you could be proud of your humility and, in effect, ruin it. So which one will he choose? Well, in this case, he's gonna say, in this case, it's not actually a choice. We can't actually tempt anybody to virtue. Watch what he says. Well, I'm afraid it's no good trying to make him brave. Our research department has not yet discovered. Those successes hourly expected. How to produce any virtue. Now, this is a serious handicap. This is interesting. Wait, wait, wait. Why would a demon want to produce a virtue? For those of you who've been with us for this whole study, you should start to think a little bit, like you have a little bit of clarity on this. I know why a demon would want to create a virtue. I think I know why. Why would, why would he want to? Well, he explains. Because to be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue. After all, what would Attila have been without his courage? See, Attila the Hun had enough uh, courage to, 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 you know, to do all those brutal acts of mass murder and, and, and torture. Or what would Shylock be without his self-denial as regards the flesh? Shylock's a Shakespearean character, the merchant of Venice who was a, a real real selfish and and a greedy moneylender. Well, but he had to have some denial of the flesh uh, or he wouldn't have been able to be truly wicked. And what's he talking about here? Why would Screwtape want somebody to be virtuous? Here's why. Have you ever heard, usually they talk about technology with this, have you ever heard somebody um, use the expression I know just enough about that to be dangerous. You ever heard somebody say that? Like with me, that's how it is with home repairs. I know just enough plumbing to flood our house. Right? I know just enough about electricity to zap us all. Some people, my mom used to say that about technology. I'm like, hey, ma, are you you good with computers? I know just enough to format the hard drive. You know, I'm like, no, okay, stop, right? Um, A hard drive is this thing, okay. So what sorry anybody uh, millennials needed. So what Screwtape wants to do is give humans just enough virtue to be dangerous. He doesn't want you truly courageous. He wants you to have just enough courage where you'll feel proud about it. He wants you to have just enough self-denial where you'll become like a Shylock and greedy toward others. So He can't supply those. He writes, but as we cannot supply these qualities ourselves, we can only use them as supplied by the enemy. And this means leaving him a kind of foothold in those men whom otherwise we've made most securely our own. A very unsatisfactory arrangement. But I trust we shall one day learn to do better. So he just moves on. So this would be great to tempt him toward courage, but the fact of the matter is, guys, that's not really an option because he can't actually give anybody a virtue. They've tried and that's the reason why. So he moves on. Let's try this. Let's try hatred. He says, we can't do courage, but maybe we can do something closely related, and it is not a virtue. It is a vice. And let's do hatred. He talks about hatred. Hatred we can manage. The tension of human nerves during noise, danger, and fatigue makes them prone to any violent emotion. And it is only a question of guiding this susceptibility into the right channels. If conscience resists, muddle him. Here's classic Lewis. He shows us a typical lie from Satan and undoes it. Watch. Let him say that he feels hatred, but not on his own behalf, but on behalf of the women and children, and that a Christian's told to forgive his own, not other people's enemies. Now, that's a great line. It sounds very reasonable. Um, he's saying your your patient is a Christian. He's probably not just going to out and out say, "I hate the Germans for bombing us tonight. I hate these Germans." So get him to say something like this. And this, to me, sounds like something we'd see in an action movie. Like, I can almost picture Clint Eastwood saying something like this. Well, I'm a Christian man. It ain't right to hate. But I don't hate him for myself. I hate him for these women and children, what they did to them. And I'm supposed to forgive my enemies, but I don't have to forgive theirs. You, know, right? like, you can see, I've invented this whole scene in my head. I'll sell the rights to anybody who watches. It. Um, and this sounds so cool, right? i got to forgive my own. Lewis always does that. Like, like, I almost bought that lie when I read it. I'm like, yeah, that's right. I'm not hating him because of me. I'm hating him what he does to others. And i got to forgive my own, but i got to forgive them. Now we're going to throw hands. Well, in other words, Lewis says, here's the lie. So, so you can consider yourself sufficiently identified with the women and children to feel hatred on their behalf, but not sufficiently identified to regard their enemies as your own and therefore proper objects of forgiveness. So good. In other words, okay, Clint Eastwood. So you can unite yourself close enough to feel their hatred, but you're not close enough to also owe their forgiveness. It's brilliant. As Lewis always does, that he shows you, that he exposes the lies of the enemy, which ironically is the point of this whole book—to expose the lies of the enemy. Okay. Maybe that's just a point of personal privilege, but I never looked at it like that. That uh, anyway, and get into hate. And hate, hatred pairs best with fear. Hatred is best combined with fear see cowardice alone of all the vices is purely painful horrible to anticipate horrible to feel horrible to remember what's he talking about i had to stop and think about that cowardice alone is purely painful of all the vices i can't really think of a counterexample. think of all the vices there's no pleasure in being a coward think of other vices if you are greedy at least there's that temporary pleasure of getting the thing you wanted if you steal it's a vice but at least you get the temporary excitement of stealing or the pleasure of the thing. If you lust, there's the temporary pleasure of fulfilling that appetite, no matter how illicit. If you lie, there's the temporary pleasure of getting out from whatever you were hiding from. And hatred has its pleasure, Screwtape writes, but cowardice, no. There's not even a temporary pleasure there, there's nothing. Hey, it's, it's horrible to feel cowardly, it's horrible to be a coward, and there's no pleasure when you look back on your life and you, ah, oh, I was a coward that day. Let me savor that memory. No, no, no. But hatred has its pleasures. It can feel good to be filled with hate and let it out in rage. And that's why he writes, it is therefore often the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of fear. All of these sentences are probably worth going back and rereading. Hatred is the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of fear. He never wants to feel fear and he does, so he soothes himself and rewards himself with hatred. The more he fears, the more he'll hate. And hatred is also a great anodyne for shame. To make a deep wound in his charity, you should therefore first defeat his courage. What on earth is he talking about? Well, I can pull a story from the headline, I think, from news headlines. How can you not see uh, that poor boy in Kansas City that was shot for his only crime was going to the wrong doorbell? Everybody with me? You've got here an act of hatred, shooting someone, why? Isn't it, isn't it fear? Isn't it just fear? You have a man who's been taught by whoever, I would say demons, by screw his whole life, he's been taught that young black men are to be feared. See, he's a coward. So the act of hatred, to me, is just very possible. The, the, the hatred is just to numb the pain of what's really going on here, which is fear, being a coward. Now, Tape admits there's a problem to this line of temptation. It's a little too obvious. And it is, sure enough, when you talk about a story like that from the headlines, I mean, every, everybody goes, well, yeah, that's wrong. And he's saying, yeah, Tape says that is the problem with cowardice, is everybody knows it's wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to know that's wrong, see? And so because everybody knows that's wrong, he's saying, don't overplay your hand. And I'll just read the whole paragraph here because it states that simple point. Don't, you probably can't use this. He writes, now this is a ticklish business. We have made men proud of most vices, but not a cowardice. Whenever we've almost succeeded in doing so, the enemy permits a war or an earthquake or some other calamity. And at once courage becomes so obviously lovely and important even in human eyes that all our work is undone. And there is still at least one vice of which they feel genuine shame cowardice. The danger of inducing cowardice in our patience, therefore, is lest we produce real self-knowledge and self-loathing with consequent repentance and humility. And in fact, in the last war, thousands of humans, by discovering their own cowardice, discovered the whole moral world for the first time. What's he talking about? In the last war was World War One, and World War One effectively put an end to the Enlightenment. Uh, so Enlightenment comes along and says, honestly, we just need science, we need technology, and with enough learning... So think about it. you're in the late 1800s, early 1900s in the Western world. With enough learning, humans will finally learn to live at peace. And we're all going to be okay. Yeah, I think we got this. I think science is going to get us there. Then World War One happens and we mustard gas each other. And everybody's like, okay, all right, okay. So the Enlightenment over in, at World War Two, and people realize, no, it's not. That's what he's talking about. It was a wake-up call to Western civilization to say, no, 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 the Enlightenment is not going to get us. Where we thought he's saying thousands of humans, by discovering their own cowardice, discover the whole moral world for the first time. Now, in peace, we can make many of them ignore good and evil entirely. In danger, the issue is forced upon them in a guise to which even we cannot blind them. There's a cruel dilemma before us. If we promoted justice and charity among men, we'd be playing directly in enemy hands. But if we guide them the opposite behavior, this sooner or later produces, for he permits it to produce, a war or a revolution. And the undisguisable issue of cowardice or courage awakes thousands of men from moral stupor. that make sense? Uh, it's it's, it's a screw tape 101. We want the humans to suffer. But if they start suffering and cry out to God, we've messed up. So we want them to suffer, but not too much. We want them to be at war, but peacetime is good if they forget about God. Does, does, does everybody understand? He says, so that, that, that's the problem. If you make them completely cowardly, they might be so cowardly that they're like, oh, I'm being a coward. I need to return to God and repent. takes like, oh, we went too far. So he wants to push you to cowardice, but not too far that you wake up. This indeed is probably one of the enemy's motives for creating a dangerous world, a world in which moral issues really come to the point. Now here he gets really deep. He's saying... Screwtape gets theological and says this is this might be why God allows free will in a moral universe. See, he sees as well as you do that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. The chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. See, Pilate was merciful till it became risky. What on earth? Okay. Let's, let's undo courage for just a second. Let's... let's Let's go back to courage. Okay. If we can put this C, if we can call it the C virtue, we'll just call it this little dot, C with a circle around it. Courage is a virtue. But he's saying courage is a particularly special virtue that you need to operate all the other virtues. And it happens at the moment of decision. So take a virtue like honesty. Honesty just floating around. And just honesty is no problem. All of you are being honest right now. All of you are being honest. Our kids are all being honest. Everybody's being honest until the baseball goes through the window. Now the question is, who did it? You got six kids lined up. And now, the virtue now needs what? The virtue of honesty needs courage. The courage to be honest. Let's take uh, selflessness, the virtue of selflessness. Everybody's selfless. Look at all of us right now. We're so selfless. We're so generous. We are so generous. We're generous with our money. We're generous with our time. We're just floating along in our selflessness. It's so good. Until what? Until he shows up. He's so boring and he wants an hour of your time and you were heading out the door and it's the last person you want to talk to. No, not my boring neighbor. Now what? Selflessness needs courage. (laughs) I don't have boring neighbors. I I love my neighbors. They're awesome. I mean, Jesus says love your neighbors, but I actually literally love Okay. (laughs) Let's take money. We're floating around with our selflessness. We're being so good. Until what? Until if I give to the poor, there may not be enough for me this month. Lord, what am I supposed to Whoop. Selflessness now needs courage. Let's take a young man and a young woman in our story and they're being chaste and they're being pure until what? Until the moment of great temptation. Now, courage, are we going to believe God's way? The list goes on. Everybody understand? He's saying courage is not just a virtue. It's like the, the virtue at the sticking point. Pilate was virtuous until it was going to cost him. See? Okay. Don't overplay your hand, Tate. It is therefore possible to lose as much as we gain by making your man a coward. He may learn too much about himself. That is the point. If you're like, I'm lost in all this. Just remember, Screwtape wants to tempt you, tempt you, tempt you, but never tempt you so far that you wake up to your true condition. The, the, the example of this in the Bible, in Luke 15, Screwtape was thrilled when the prodigal son went way far away from the father, but he pushed him too far. And when he was in the pigsty, he went too far, didn't he? Because what? he came, The Bible says he came to his senses. Satan wants you one inch above rock bottom. Never rock bottom, because you might wake up, but one inch above rock bottom in a terrible <laughs> life, steal, kill, destroy. But don't don't overplay your hand. He would rather you be the older brother, because then you'd always be blind, unlike the prodigal son. This is this is screw take one This should all feel very familiar. Uh, if it doesn't, I hope you don't feel judged. It, 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 over time, alright? your next uh, two or three times, okay. It's therefore possible to lose, I read that. Oh, there is, of course, always the chance, not of chloroforming the shame, but of aggravating and producing despair. This would be a great triumph. In other words, not just trying to do away with the shame that way, but what if we did this? What if we made him a coward? Here's another technique, this is very common.
1: Another technique
0: is aggravate that and make him not only feel like he's a coward, but he's an unforgivable coward and get a Christian to despair. I, this is a shame that I didn't allow myself more time to talk about this because I believe capital D despair. I haven't preached enough sermons on this. I need to. We need to talk more about this. I don't think we talk enough. they used to talk about it a lot in Christian circles. Uh, I don't know we don't talk enough about capital D despair as a great temptation for Christians to fall into. This is condemnation. this is walking around in guilt and feeling like I'll never be enough, God can't love me, I can never have my sins forgiven, that is a real problem among like Bible-believing Christians. They're walking around in capital D despair. And if you've ever been tempted by despair, I want you to know you're not alone. And to everybody who's not been tempted, don't underestimate the sin of despair, self-pity, condemnation. It's a dark place, and it is a real temptation, and Satan's willing to use it. It would show, if we could get him to be in this, despair, it would show that he believed in and accepted the enemy's forgiveness of his other sins only because he himself didn't fully realize their sinfulness or feel their sinfulness. That in respect that in respect of the one vice which he really understands and its full depth of dishonor, he cannot seek nor credit the mercy. Uh, complicated sentence. In other words, why would he... If we can get him to feel despair about being a coward, watch this. If we can get him to feel despair about being a coward, then he'll say... I can be forgiven of any sin, but not this. Why not this one? Well, because this one I really feel the effects of, and the other sins, I didn't feel them as much. Oh, okay, so you're basing your forgiveness of sin based on if you feel really bad about it. See? I know a lot of Christians that do that. They base their justification before a holy God on how well they've been behaved for the last, like, 72 hours. And as long as they feel pretty good about the last 72 hours, they're like, me and God are fine. Not realizing the fact that, no, you're fine with God because of the cross Not because of how good or bad you've been in the last 72 hours And besides, it's such an arbitrary Why not the last 48 hours? Why not the last two weeks? You see the point But I fear you've already let him go too far in the enemy's school And he knows that despair is a greater sin Than any of the sins which provoke it That's a good line Self-pity, despair Watch out, it really is As to the actual technique of temptations to cowardice, not much need to be said. The main point is precautions have a tendency to increase fear. The precautions are the like air raid sirens that go off before the Germans came through England. The precautions publicly enjoined on your patient, however, soon become a matter of routine, and this effect disappears. And that's true, like all fire alarms and things. What you must do is to keep running in his mind, side by side, with the conscious intention of doing his duty, the vague idea of all sorts of things he can do or not do inside the framework of the duty, which seem to make him a little safer. You know, get get his mind off the simple rule, I've got to stay here and do so and so into a series of imaginary lifelines. Well, if A happened, though I very much hope it uh, won't, I could do B, and I guess if the worst came to worst, I could always do C. Superstitions, if not recognized as such, can be awakened. The point is to keep him feeling that he has something other than the enemy and the courage the enemy supplies to fall back on so that what was intended to be a total commitment to duty becomes honeycombed all through with little unconscious reservations. (laughs) It's so simple. God's called you to this post. He's called you to be a a wife, a mother, a husband, a father, a friend, a brother—whatever it is—he's called you to be a faithful Christian. Come what may, and once you make that big, hard decision, the rest kind of fall into place. He's saying, get him to like poke holes in that hard decision. Well, if this happens, then this happens. If, listen, it's real simple. Your job is to be faithful, to Jesus Christ. My my job is very simple: preach the gospel. Well, what if? What if the United States becomes a? Culturally hostile place to the gospel. What if some of the things you have to say from the pulpit become the hate speech? Then my job's to preach the gospel. Visit me in prison. Like, I hope you, (laughs) right? But, 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 but what if God calls me to a a mission field? What if he calls you, what if he calls your kid far away to a mission field? Our job's to be faithful to Christ. Once the big decision's made, right? Simple. Just takes courage, okay? Always let him feel, he says, that he has something other than God to fall back on. Let it slip into it, little by little. Final paragraph. By building up a series of imaginary expedients to prevent, quote, the worst coming to the worst, you may produce, at that level of his will, which he's not aware of, a determination that the worst shall not come to the worst. Then, at the moment of real terror, rush it out into his nerves and muscles, and you may get the fatal act done before he knows what you're about. For remember, the act of cowardice is all that matters. The emotion of fear is, in itself, no sin. And though we enjoy it, it does us no good. What's he after? He doesn't care. When the bombs come, he's got to hold his post. He's got to do his duty. All ScrewTape wants is for him to throw up his arms and run off. Ah! And run off scared, right? That's all he cares about. If he holds his post and he's scared the whole time, that's no sin. It's no sin to be scared. John Wayne, here it is. I said, I've had Clint Eastwood. We close with John Wayne. Courage, John Wayne said. Courage is being scared to death of doing something and saddling up anyway. Pilgrim. <laughs> courage is being scared to death of doing something. We always say, courage, I'm not afraid of, whoa. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. Okay, it's seven o'clock on the dock, we have no time for questions. <laughs> but you may email me, or by all means, stick around afterward. Man, we were so close. I really thought tonight it was going to be. I think I started talking about Barry Zito. Jackie, will you <laughs> close us in a word of prayer? I love you guys. Thank you so much. Next week's our last week, guys. It's here. You did it. Persevere. Have no fear. Have courage. Jackie. <laughs> Dear God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy uh, that you provide for us daily, um, new mercies every day, guys So I thank you. Thank you for each and every person that's here. Thank you so much for Tom leading us through this. Uh, it's not an easy study, um, and so I just thank you for his wisdom. Um, and thank you for everybody that's here who persevered through it. Um, and, God, I just thank you so much for, um, man, just the way you love us. I pray, God, that we do long for heaven, uh, that we don't, we're not satisfied with this world, but instead we long for you and the things of heaven. And we just love you, God. In the same we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Grateful for you. See you next week.